Welcome to One Step, a podcast about the small steps in life's journey to healing and transformation. We'll be exploring the arc of change through life's deepest questions and most challenging moments, while also celebrating the small victories and having some fun. Because change doesn't happen overnight, it happens one step at a time. I'm your host, Ingrid Nelson, and I've spent the last 10 years thinking I want to have kids, and now I think, well, maybe I don't. But that hasn't stopped my insatiable appetite for everything and anything related to motherhood, because whether you want kids or not, I think understanding parental culture is a fundamental part of feminism. Today, I'm talking to Angela Garbs, who is the author of one of my favorite books, Like a Mother, A Feminist Journey Through the Science and Culture of Pregnancy. Angela's unapologetic in her exploration of pregnancy, and she demands that maternal health becomes a priority, because right now, as a lot of us know, it is not. We'll be covering how to accept a body that's changing, how people of color are often left out of the trendy parenting conversations today, why we say working mom and not working dad, and what sex is really like after giving birth. Let's dive in. I just have to say that the way I discovered your book was very serendipitous. I was at Greenlight Bookstore in Brooklyn, and I remember seeing your book. I was like, well, you know, I'm I'm not a mother. I don't think this is a book for me. And I kept going around the bookstore, but I kept coming back to it like three or four times. And finally, I was like, I keep coming back to this book. I'm going to pick it up and see what it's about. And I have to say that your book was really my first step in re-examining how I felt about motherhood and deciding to pick it up at the bookstore changed everything for me. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for telling me that story. That means, yeah. that means a lot to me. And it means a lot to me coming from someone who's you know not not a mother or not at that place yet or still thinking about it. Because when I wrote it, um, I mean, obviously the way books are marketed, right? It's sort of a niche book, you know, pregnancy and motherhood, but I don't, I just really don't see it that way. Yeah. I think it's it's so important too, because it helped inform me not only more about my body, but also it took me out of my own personal perspective on motherhood. And I was able to see the broader cultural perspective. So I was wondering, what was your first step that you took in questioning the culture around pregnancy? That's a great question. I mean, for years, I was a, I worked as a food writer for years. So really, honestly, the fact that I wrote a book about pregnancy and motherhood, questioning the culture of it, is in many ways one of the biggest surprises of my life. <laughs> um, when I was pregnant with my oldest daughter, who's now four and a half, there were many things that did not sit well with me. I wanted information. I wanted to know and understand everything that was happening in my body because it seemed like a pretty complex process by which I was growing another person. So I wanted to understand <laughs> that. And I felt really frustrated. You know, you learn, you get information to by recommendations from people. It's a very like interpersonal grassroots sharing kind of thing. And all of the books that people directed me towards, while there was valuable information in them, it's very telling to me that the majority of books about pregnancy are guidebooks. And part of a guidebook is it's telling you how you should do something. It 
it's as though there's one right way to do it. And that never sat well with me. And I was like, I don't really like these books, but I would just continue to read them or put them down. I wasn't thinking that I was going to find some other path. But so fast forward a little bit after I gave birth, a week after I gave birth to my oldest daughter, I got a phone call from the local Alt Weekly here in Seattle that I had been a freelance writer for for years. And they said, you know, we have a staff food writer job coming up. So I took it. It was really a no brainer. Like this had been my dream, like as a writer to have like a full-time job writing. I should say that I think that all mothers and all parents are working parents, whether or not they have a job outside of the home, um, because it's a lot of work. But I was a full-time working mom in the sense that I had an office job that I had to be out, you know, 40 hours a week. And it was so hard. (laughs) And I was breastfeeding. So that, look, I felt like I had two jobs, really, because breastfeeding and pumping really, you know, in the early days takes up eight or more hours sometimes of your day. I had been at the paper for, I don't know, maybe six months or so. And in an editorial meeting, someone said, you know, it's, it's about time that you started thinking about writing a feature for us, you know, a longer, a longer piece. And what, what are you interested in? Like, what are you thinking about? As a food writer, I felt that this was a continuation of my beat. And I said, oh, well, you know, I'm really interested in breast milk. (laughs) So that, the idea really fell flat <laughs> and we just sort of like the, the editor went, okay, great. So Sean, do you have any ideas? <laughs> and I remember being like, okay, so I, I get it. Like people aren't, aren't int- that interested in this, but I am. That's really what started the journey and what ended what ended up becoming this book is I wrote this piece. The paper did end up publishing it. And within 24 hours, it went viral. You know, like it now has like 2 million page views, hundreds of thousands of people sharing about it on Facebook, on Twitter. I was getting a ton of emails and it was incredibly validating, right? That this was a subject that people were interested in. But, you know, based just on the success of that article, I, my agent found me and asked me, you know, do you want to turn this into a book? And I thought, well, yeah, I mean, I have a million questions. Like, why are pregnancy guidebooks written the way they are, right? Yeah. You know, before I had my daughter, I had had two, I experienced two pregnancy losses. I have great health care and I love my physician, but I didn't feel like he was necessarily prepared to talk to me about that. And no mm-hmm. one was really prepared to explain to me why that happened. Like, why does one pregnancy end? And why does one make it to term? Um, and I just found that there was all this, Silence, a lot of unknown stuff, right? I wanted to know about the placenta, which is an an entirely new organ that pregnant people grow from scratch alongside a baby. I wanted to get that information for myself, and then I wanted other people to have it too. Yeah, I mean, that's why your breast milk article went viral, because people were probably like, oh my God, how did you not know this? Yeah, it was exactly the reaction I had, which was really like, how do, why are we talking about this all the time? The woman that I spoke to, when I said, so the immunological part, how does that work? And she was like, if I tell you, you will never unknow it. Do you want to know? And I was like, yes, 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 <laughs> obviously yes, right? And yeah. she explained to me that when an infant suckles, like the working theory, right, with, which has evidence behind it, is that when an infant suckles at its mother's breast, a vacuum is created. And some of that breast milk is, and so, the infant saliva rather, is sucked back in to the nipple. And then the mammary glands read that. And if they detect an infection or a pathogen, they compel the mother's body to create antibodies specific to that infection to fight it. 
Wow. Which is like, I mean, it seems to me like almost like science fiction or like superhero power. Like, yeah. like this is what my body is doing. And not just like, but this is what my body was designed to do. This is just what it does. I'm not even doing anything active, right? I'm just alive yeah. feeding. And this is, this is what it's set up to do. And I thought, I mean, really the, where I went immediately was women's bodies are incredible. And why aren't we talking about this? But the thing is, like, I discovered many other things like that, you know, like my husband talks about during the time that I was researching and writing this book, I would come out of the room every single day and be like, and another thing about female bodies. <laughs> and it just seems like, you know, the way our culture is set up, we don't celebrate the power of women's bodies. You know, women routinely go through life feeling terrible about their bodies. And I just really, I wanted to combat that. I wanted to, for people to feel amazing about what they were capable of doing. Well, I think you've definitely accomplished that with this book. And I think also one of the reasons why I kept walking away from your book, but then going back to it was because I thought it was going to be a motherhood book, like mm -hmm. all the other motherhood books that I had been exposed to. And that's why I thought, oh, this is not going to be for me. I thought it was going to be like a do's and don'ts of uh -huh. pregnancy and motherhood. And I think that when I have flipped through those books, I, I'm not even on that path right now, but I thought, oh my gosh, I feel so bad about myself and I'm not right. even going. Through this. <laughs> so early, you know, that whole idea of like, the way we approach it is, well, you know, like I'm going to, I think I want to do it this way, but it feels like maybe that's not the right way or the best way. And that's a, like, you shouldn't be approaching it from that way. You should be approaching it from like, this is what you want and you're built to do this, right? Like yeah. your choices should be validated. Your experiences should be, you should be stepping into this from a place of, of knowledge and even in power, but that's not how it plays out in most people's lives. Yeah. And I've also noticed that a lot of the books that are out there and a lot of the, I would say, more recent media attention around motherhood is really focused on this view that comes from a privileged white perspective. And I read your piece in the cut literally mm -hmm. when it came out because I was just <laughs> like frothing at the mouth for anything more. Um, and one of the parts that really stuck with me was how you had to fight for the cover of your book. Yeah, the cover and that spoke to you, right? That drew you back. I feel, I'm glad yeah. that I fought for it because it was the, yeah. you know, that it had the effect that I wanted in a bookstore. Yeah, and I mean, I thought about that and I thought, you know, that was one of the reasons why I kept coming back to this book because it just, it looked different. Like there's a woman that has darker skin on the cover. And I just kept thinking, oh, this looks like my mom when she was mm -hmm. pregnant with me. My mom is from Thailand. And now I'm curious to know, like as a woman of color yourself, what are some of the other unseen obstacles that you've faced as a writer and a mother? When we were going back and forth about the cover, I had said, you know, just the planning of it. I said, you know, the things that are really important to me is that this book is very much about the body and I want there to be an image of a pregnant body. 
not mm-hmm. a body in a nightgown, not like an amorphous body, like a pregnant body. And the second part is because I had worked in publishing for a long time and I know how things go. I know that artwork that gets assigned to go with pieces do not like the dominant point of view and framework is is white. And so I said, you know, I am not a white woman. <laughs> and so I need to make sure that the cover of this book is a book that I can see myself in. I need other people, other women of color to be able to see themselves in this. I just always go through through life feeling like I'm making an adjustment to relate to things. I am suspending a lot of things about my own life and the understanding and the lived experience of being in a brown body to to relate to things. I worked in a newsroom of like between 15 and 20 people and I was one of two women of color. And I was hired by that woman of color, right? So like the numbers had gone up in a very short period of time. She was new at the paper and there was, you know, one other person of color. So you have fewer opportunities to begin with. And, you know, there's this idea too, that you sometimes hear about it. Like people of color talk about how you define success in whatever field you work in, you almost have to be twice as good. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that's true for many people, but I think it's a little more nuanced than that, where I think you, you have to develop a whole other set of skills, you know, like there's this idea of code switching, right. You have to like speak almost another language or you have to sort of like shut off part of yourself. Like you have to play another person's game. I think another side of like tough to be twice as good is, is knowing that things that are given to you or things that you have earned can go away faster. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I mean? You're, you're, you're given a much shorter allowance for screwing up. You know, you see the like straight cis white men, you know, or cis white men, they can make mistake after mistake after mistake. And it doesn't really affect their, you know, like their ability to be successful or be taken seriously. And I think, you know, as a woman of color, I'm acutely aware. I don't know. I'm, I'm just supposed to be grateful for the opportunity, I guess. There's also, I, I mean, another aspect to this is that it's about survival, right? Like part of me wants to tear down the system and just burn it all down. But that's, that's not realistic all the time. This is the system in which I operate, right? I have this opportunity to write a book. So how do I find compromise? Yeah. How do I negotiate? You know, you don't want to come off as, the, as just an angry person. And so to go back to that, the book cover, which I just said, like, these are the two things that are important to me, a pregnant body and, you know, an image that a person of color, you know, myself mostly could see myself in. The thing is the, the first draft of the cover that came back was, was like an amorphous pregnant person in like a muumuu, right? And to me, it was pretty clear that it was a white, a light skinned person. Yeah. I was a local writer at a local paper. I wrote one article that did a thing right? Like I'm not well known. I didn't have a lot of leverage or juice. And I felt like when, when there was a little bit resistance in, in figuring out this cover, I, I remember telling myself, like realizing, looking inside and being like, if I'm going to fight for anything, it's going to be this cover. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of like figured out how to do that. You know, I spent hours composing an email that was only two paragraphs long, right? Yeah. <laughs> about, again, like, I feel like you're not I feel like you're not listening to what I'm trying to say here. And, you know, there was an exchange, and, you know, to my publisher's credit, you know, we found a compromise and the cover, I'm so happy with the cover. And especially now, like, again, in my feelings about you talking about seeing this cover and it's such a, it's like radical in this way that, you know, someone who is a person of color can go and clearly see themselves. And you know what? A white person can see themselves in this image too, or you know, or they can make that very small adjustment that people of color make hundreds of times a day to see themselves in things. That is such a good point. And when I 
you know, read this book, I immediately just like my mom and wanted to know Mm -hmm. what was your experience like when you were pregnant with me and after you had me and it opened up this door of conversation. So many things that I had never even heard before, like Uh the level of harassment that she received, um, not only because, you know, she was a woman with a child and she chose to do certain things Uh with her child, um, but because she's a woman of color and people very um, openly treated her differently and were really cruel Mm -hmm. and harassed her. Um, And I just, I had no idea about this because I didn't hear these stories when I was young. But after reading this book, I had the language to approach her and ask her these questions. And I just realized, oh my God, I had no idea that my mom had such a similar experience to the things that I read in this book. Mm -hmm. So that's amazing to me that it would like lead to that. That's such a, it's such a gift to like hear that. I think, you know, one, one other thing, if I can say is that in writing this book, I never, I actually didn't intend to put so much of my own story in it. I was really like, la-di-da, I'm writing a book about, I'm writing a narrative nonfiction book about the emerging science of pregnancy, right? Like I didn't think I'd do anything approaching memoir or personal narrative or the extent to which I did. And I think this goes back to that previous question of the challenges that you face. And I don't think this is a good thing, but to be completely honest, I had never really confronted the extent to which I internalized the idea as a woman of color that I shouldn't write about memoir because no one would care about my story. Mm-hmm. When we talk about motherhood, we're not talking about my story about motherhood. So who would want to read that? Yeah. And yeah. I mean, I had to really confront that and like undo that. And one of the most gratifying things about publishing this book is hearing from you, hearing from other women of color who are like me, who want these stories. These are valid stories and people are just out there waiting for them, you know, and the publishing industry should take note of that because like from a business perspective, that's, you're losing so many readers, so much of an audience, but it's my own internal challenge, believing fully in the validity of my experience, which it wasn't hard in my daily life. I believed in the validity of my own experience, but putting it out into the world and believing that other people would think it was valuable or worth paying attention to, that was a much harder, bigger step for me. Yeah. And you would think that the argument of, well, you know, if you have people of color writing for you or working for you and you're able to retain them and, you know, make them happy and allow them to do the work that they want to be doing, it's better for business. And it's so Mm -hmm. interesting to me how often that is said and how much it doesn't sink in with people. Like it's just not something that people are really willing to hear and put into action. Something that I've also wondered about with you too, because I know that you had started off, you know, writing about food, but you also went from being this person who had questions about Mm -hmm. pregnancy and now you are a published author and you have (laughs) about motherhood and you're also raising two kids. And I imagine that there has been this shift going from person with questions to now public 
here and published author. So what has that been like? Well, that is a great question because I'm still very much living it. I'll say that I don't feel like the transition has been particularly graceful, right? Like it's, um, it's, it's an adjustment, right? Like I, I feel really grateful to someone at an event that I did where one of the things that I, I say at events uh, to people is that, you know, we go to doctors, we go to healthcare providers, and the way it's set up is that they're somehow experts. They've mm-hmm. had education, they've got years of training, right? And so we tend to defer to them because they're they're the expert. But when it comes to our own lived experiences and our bodies, you know, a pregnant person, a birthing person, we are also experts. No one is a better expert at their own body than themselves, right? So that's like a thing that I always say to people because I feel like people need to hear it. So I say this, but then, you know, like five minutes later, someone's asking me a question and I'm like, well, I'm not an expert. <laughs> and the person was like, what, what are you talking about? Like, you just told all of us here that we're experts in our own experience. She's like, but it's interesting to me that you, the way you're stepping away from that for yourself. Which gets to the point that like, I still think of myself as that person with questions because I still have so many more. I am aware of how much there is, how much we still don't know, right? And how much I don't know. And so owning my own expertise or, or owning the place that I'm at in my life now, which is people want to hear what I have to say, right? Like, or yeah, that's, that's new for me. And so in a way it's, it's great because I have two young children. And so I'm like, Every day I'm still like down on my hands and knees, like on the carpet yeah. making moo sounds, right? This is like <laughs> how most days begin and end. So I can't, even if I, when I own that, I can't ever get too carried away about, you know, how big my shit is, right? <laughs> like yeah. I'm still like doing this, this work every day. And like, it really, it keeps me very, very grounded. And that's what I, that's like the most important thing in my life is what I'm doing at home. The parts of me that no one really sees. That's really who I am and who I always have been. One thing that I've realized is that people have have been really desperate and really hungry to have these kinds of conversations. And events are always like, I usually cry at all of the events that I do at some point. And usually somebody else cries too, because, you know, people don't have space, safe spaces to talk about the challenges of parenthood, of the postpartum experience, of pregnancy loss. You know, there's, there's so many stories out there people don't often have a place to talk about those things. And I've also realized, and this is something that I'm getting more comfortable with is like, I'm good at that. You know, I'm good at talking to an audience. I'm good in front of a group of people, you know, especially in the just hellscape of the assumption of everyone, people who are in government is really that women don't have any rights to their own body. Like bodily autonomy is not important, right? Like it's, it's amazing to have an audience at this point. And so I think I've been also emboldened to talk about things that I think are really important, right? Like I was doing events over the summer, people are gathered to talk about pregnancy. And I was like, well, I just don't see any way that we can't talk about family separation. Why we have to be talking about, you know, our country. I was thinking about what you were saying about your mom, how, you know, in this country, we, it's so much easier for people to judge and to criminalize the behavior of parents of color as opposed mm-hmm. to white women. Like that's exactly what's happening with immigrants here where they arrive. And, and somehow we've allowed the perspective that we're questioning that coming, traveling, risking your life, traveling thousands of miles is somehow a poor parental decision, right? Like you're doing that yeah. to, to give you your children a chance at a better life. And we're punishing people for that. 
you know, my parents are immigrants. I couldn't get up in front of an audience and pretend that that's not happening. So that's a benefit. As much as I think it is wild that people want to come and hear what I have to say, it's really an honor and it's a gift to have the opportunity to do that. And I think I've also just realized, like, if you're going to hand me a microphone, I'm going to talk. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I still have so many questions and I'm aware of all the things that I don't know. But like, I'm how much there is, I don't know. But I also know what I know. Why not me? I worked to get here. I'm 41 years old. I've been doing this a while. I've been thinking about these things for a while. And I don't know how long it's going to last. So I feel like I have to take advantage of it. I'm glad that you're taking up this space. Thank you. And you know, something that I think about even basically a year after reading your book, I think about this at least a couple times a week about how morality is tied to motherhood and how everyone is really quick to judge. You know, yeah. you know, my mom being judged for things um, that she would decide were the right decisions for her as a mother, which would probably not be viewed the same way if mm-hmm. she's a white woman. And yeah. I think that especially at that time, she had very limited resources. She had all the like do's and don'ts, the guidebooks, um, but I don't think they really ever resonated with her. And Mm -hmm. I wonder, how do you navigate the world of the do's and the don'ts? Because I feel like now, especially with social media and the internet, it's kind of everywhere all the time, Point where you may not even realize what it is that you are consuming just because we're so used to seeing it all the time. And we may not even realize our own judgments. Uh-huh. As well. The morality thing, which is a big, I'm glad that you asked me this. It's a major point that I put out in the very beginning of the book, because once I made that realization, I was like, like, why are we only talking about this in terms of good or bad, do or don't, should or shouldn't? When you use that, it really sets people up to feel terrible because if you don't do what you quote unquote should, it means you're doing what you shouldn't, which means that that's wrong and that's bad. And there's no one way to do this, right? So a lot of people are going to feel bad. (laughs) And so I, I was like, I just reject this whole frame. Like I call BS on this. And so then a challenge moving forward in the book was to be like, what if we got rid of that entire moral frame? What's left? There's a lot left, right? And what I found was like, if you, if you take that away, I believe that we are all doing the best with what we have. And some of us have more resources than others. And that's, you know, that's just the way it is. It's always going to be that way. But what do we all have in common? We're all trying to do the best with what we have. That's the place that I operate from. And we are all left with our bodies. So Mm -hmm. that's why the book is heavily emphasized on science and our bodies, because we all have that. And they're different. They're all different, but they're all also very much the same. So I wanted to explore that and focus on the science. And I assume that that looking out for yourself and your own needs and looking out for a fetus's needs, those two are not mutually exclusive things. You can do both at the same time. And I think the way that we, it begins so early the sublimation of the mother begins so early in pregnancy, right? You you are who you are for like three decades before you get pregnant. But suddenly within like two weeks of being pregnant, people are, you know, the books and everything is like, 
so tea, coffee. Yeah. Are you sure you want to do that? Okay. And I just feel like people can make their own decisions. I think people really are looking out for for a fetus. And like, but that, that doesn't mean that they have to deny who they are. That was so freeing. And yeah, like I, you know, I'm very much engaged in conversations and paying attention to what's going on in culture in terms of motherhood. And that frame still exists. And I am just like, slightly unbothered by the whole thing. Right? Like, I am just like, for me, and I'm not saying that I'm never affected by that. But I trust myself now. And I just get that what's best for me is not going to necessarily be what's best for the person next to me, even one of my closest friends, to the extent that I can, I just tune that out. You know, it's made my life slightly less complicated. Yeah, I feel like after really having this revelation after reading your book, it made me a lot more aware of the judgments that I had, but also operating in the world, listening to other people, being involved in different conversations, and how much judgment that I have always been around, but Mm -hmm. I was just never aware of. I just accepted these things as like, this is what you do and this is what you don't. And after reading your book, I remember thinking, I love cheese. Like, why (laughs) do I love cheese when I'm pregnant? (laughs) Like, that's a risk that I would be willing to take. And that's what you talk about in the book. You know, people should be able to decide what yeah. it, that they want to do with their bodies. And I was like, I would probably be a cheese person. Like, <laughs> I think that's what I would choose. And, you know, the um, reality and- is, too, that, you know, so it is, there is a risk involved, right, if you're going to have a raw, unpasteurized cheese. The thing is, most cheese that you get here in America is pasteurized and not made with raw milk. Yeah. So you're actually not, it's not even, like, the perceived risk is not a reflection of the reality. So have your cheese, Ingrid. Have your cheese. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, it's released or at least put out in the open a lot of shame that has just been kept on the inside for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, because, you know, you wrote this book, you've had in-person events, you've talked to various people in real life. And I was wondering if you noticed throughout all of these different experiences if there was just like one big shame cloud that everyone (laughs) that seems Uh to be like hovering over everyone um like if there was one big thing that everyone seems to experience when it comes to pregnancy and motherhood so I can't say that there's one thing that applies to everyone it's wonderful the world is too diverse to say that one thing applies to everyone I will say that generally One thing that I think people struggle with, and this is from early pregnancy through motherhood, which is I think that there's a people have a hang up about expressing honestly any ambivalence or Mm -hmm. about having children, right? So, like, say you're pregnant and it's not the right time for you, right? But you know that you want to have kids, like, it's people feel from that moment almost like ashamed or they can't say. I don't know if I want this child mm-hmm. um, or I want to be pregnant. You know, I think that's a success of like far right pro-life where we're supposed to be ashamed. Like somehow already this potential life might have more impact, you know, or be more important than what you know to be right for you at this moment. And then you you follow that through, like through pregnancy where being pregnant is physically hard. I was just having a conversation with a friend this weekend and I was saying, you know, I, I'm not having any more kids and she asked, are you, are you bummed about that? And I was like, I don't, I mean, no, I'm not really bummed about it. I was like, but I liked being pregnant. 
And she was like, oh, I hated it. (laughs) And she has two kids and she is an amazing mother. But she was like, yeah, I, I didn't like it. And I think that people don't feel as entitled to talk about how, how, how much they don't enjoy being pregnant or how miserable they are during it. Because somehow that's seen as being reflective of how they feel about their potential child or their fetus. And then in early motherhood, which is so hard, it's so hard. There's so much work and there's so many emotions and you're physically devastated in so many ways and you're parenting. And I think that people don't feel as comfortable. Luckily, there are people who are willing to speak out, but I think a lot of people don't feel as comfortable saying, I love my children, but it's so hard. Sometimes I wish I didn't have them. Or sometimes I think about what my life would be like if I didn't have kids. You know, so I think any kind of ambivalence about that, like when you become a mother, when you become pregnant, you're supposed to, you exist like in service of somebody else. And I think that that's ingrained in women, especially. And so I think, again, I don't think this applies to everyone, but it's something that I've seen through the like range of experience, as I said, from pregnancy through motherhood. So I feel like that that's something that, that I see and, and that seems to affect a lot of people. Yeah. And what I've noticed is that when people become mothers or even when they're still pregnant, sometimes our culture strips them of their multifaceted identities and their desires. And um, I think there's also this sense from the people themselves where they feel like that has to happen and they need to be all of a sudden this like motherly figure Mm -hmm. that we just like weirdly have in our heads of like a woman wearing an apron, like holding out a pot roast or something (laughs) and like on the children and just being, you know, angelic and nurturing and constantly being a caregiver. And I wonder like, what has been the hardest step for you in maintaining your personal identity when there is such a huge shift that happens in your life? And then there are also these cultural ideas and expectations happening as well. I've always thought of myself as a really independent person. You know, when I met my husband who I met like 12 years ago, that was like a thing where I was like, I really love this person. I want to be with them, but I don't need them. Right. I don't need them to be me. I don't need them because I had worked to get to that place. And I think that that's the basis for a good relationship when you're at that place where you don't necessarily feel like you need them, but you choose them and you want to be there, like with them. And, you know, that was like in the decision to become a parent or to become parents together, we had actually been ambivalent. I was like, I want kids. I don't need them. It's not a thing that I have known since the age of seven or 12, right? That I was going to be a mother. And he was open, but had never really seriously considered it. But we made that choice Mm -hmm. together, right? To do this thing together. And then when you have a child, this idea of independence, everything gets thrown for a loop because I never have I been needed by someone so desperately. (laughs) My youngest daughter still needs my body, needs me to survive. That plays with your mind and like my, and your identity, right? And I still need time alone. So I I would say that after I had these babies, I realized that like for me to do this, I need help. And I needed my husband, I needed my mother who thankfully lives close by in a way that I didn't realize before and that seemed contrary to my identity as a completely self-sufficient independent woman. When I had to admit that I needed help, then I had to accept help, 
which was not my strong suit, right? <laughs> like I would like, I spent the early years of my relationship with my husband, like pushing him away, pretending like I didn't need him when I needed him, right? <laughs> like, you know, accepting that help. And then I think the other factor to it now is that I'm lucky to be in a position where we have childcare and can afford that. But like I pay for that help now. And that's what makes it possible for me to get back to that place of how I think of myself, which is an independent, you know, an individual for me to do my work, for me to be the kind of person that I understand and know myself to be, for me to be the kind of mother that that I am, the, the best kind of mother that I could be, like I need to also be away from my children. Wow, that's so powerful because I think we're inundated with messages of you need to be with your kids all the time. There's this weird idea of like, what's acceptable and what's not. And there's this very narrow idea of what's quote unquote, right. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the vast majority of people are not going to fit into that really, really small section. And I feel like it's something that probably also shifts too, as you go down the path of being a mother and a parent? I think that, you know, in that, the early days of my daughter's, both of their existence, like I, I liked being needed. I liked in some ways turning away from the world to like focus on them because there's no other time like that. But then as you go back into the world some more, like I need stimulation, right? I need like yeah. socializing. Like I think if I spent 24 hours a day with my children, every day, you know, 24 seven, I feel like I would die. <laughs> like, and that doesn't mean that I don't love them so much, but I wouldn't feel like my full self. And like, this kind of gets to like, I said that and it's true, but I also feel like, Oh my God, like, how is that going to land for people? Right. Why will yeah. I be judged for saying that? You know, but, but I also think that we have this idea too, that it's the mother who sacrifices, you know, like people self-identify as a working mom. Have you ever heard a man refer to themselves as a working dad. No. It's like always no, assumed that they get to be themselves. They also parent, even if they're the most, you know, maybe they split completely everything, like 50-50, maybe it's a totally equitable partnership, but they still have the luxury and the privilege of identifying as themselves first. Mm -hmm. And I think mothers are expected to identify as a mother first and foremost. And for me, like I gladly claim motherhood. It's a huge part of my identity, but it's not everything. One thing I do want to say too, is that in sharing the responsibility of raising my daughters and caring for them, it goes back to something I really believe, which is that why are we asked to go it alone? It's never the sole responsibility yeah. of a mother to take care of children, you know? And even if you don't want kids, kids are how we continue as a, as a species, right? Like it's, it's, it's everyone's responsibility to engage in that in some way. Like you can still have meaningful relationships in your life with small people, right? Even if you yourself don't want to be a parent. And I think that it's also very beneficial for children to have meaningful relationships with people that are not their parents. I feel like that's where I am right now. I always thought for a pretty significant chunk of my life that I was just like destined to be a mom. And when I started picking it apart more when I was in my 20s and I just turned 30, I'm at this point now where I'm thinking, maybe I don't want to be a mom. Mm -hmm. And I'm really just in this, I, I definitely know I don't want to be a mom anytime soon. I think that has, you know, that's landed with people in various uh -huh. ways. And I think that it's really important to like have these 
spaces where these things can be talked about openly and reading Facebook posts from other women talking about their experiences with motherhood and how they love their children, but they are just like feeling crushed by like Mm -hmm. the daily experience of what motherhood entails. And also, you know, for me, being around younger people, smaller people and realizing, oh, you know, I would be okay if this is my life. And I think Mm -hmm. that this this is why I'm so interested in this subject, because it's like you said, this is how the human species (laughs) going. And I think also the way that we view people who are raising the younger generation that will be the future, the way we view the people raising them is just fundamental to who we are as a broader culture. And it's really important to recognize like how we are viewing and treating these people and the rights that we're not giving these people mm-hmm. and you know the voices that we're silencing. I think it connects to so many different aspects of our lives, of our political world that just aren't necessarily solely about motherhood. Right. Um, I shifting gears here just mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, when I, you know, I've talked to people about what sex is like after. Oh, yeah. Okay, we are shifting gears here. Great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, the only thing I've ever heard is have sex after whatever amount of time. Uh And I've also noticed that it tends to be focused on, you know, the partner not having sex, specifically like the male partner Uh being deprived of sexual pleasure and how hard it is for him to survive like those weeks without sex. Uh And when I read your book, I remember like holding it out and like my mouth was open when we were talking. (laughs) your first you know experience back into having sex with your husband and I was like oh my god (laughs) told me this yeah no one told me either (laughs) yeah so can you talk about that what it was like from your perspective Sure. Um, Which, you know, just to be clear, I didn't anticipate going there and talking about what going back to sex was like. But um, I was working on this chapter about postpartum. I mean, I was sorting through a lot of things about the alienation that I felt from my own body and the struggle that I was having with my husband to figure out, like, what does our relationship look like now when it's not really just about us? And so I had interviewed several people. One woman that I interviewed was so honest and so frank with me about the challenges that she and her partner had that I was like, oh my God. Like, And, I, and meanwhile, as I was interviewing her, I was like, I want to know everything. Right? And not from a place of tell me like all about your sex life. It wasn't titillating or anything like that. It was just like, it was so real. I think, you know, in, in good, strong relationships, like we call it a sex life, right? Because it's a huge aspect of a relationship. It adds a dimension to it that is really necessary. And it's a, it's a, like safe private place where you get energy and you are validated and you're seen as, you know, attractive. It fuels so many other things. And so it became this thing where I realized like, I don't know that I could write this chapter 
without talking about it in some way. And so the the number that you were referring to, um, it's usually people say six weeks is how long before you can have sex again. And the emphasis is always on the other person as though like masturbation isn't a, a legitimate option that should be used. Yeah. Right? Like, um, I think people can be fine for six weeks. But, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, and you go to a postpartum appointment and a lot of people told me that, you know, the appointment was really like, the doctor seemed to do a very perfunctory, like, look under the hood. Cool, you can have sex. It's not really what's on your mind, right? Like, sexual yeah. is so far from how I would describe myself. I had a C-section for both my births, but with my first one, I, and I was really naive. I did not realize what the recovery would be like. I couldn't really, like, walk or go upstairs for several weeks afterwards, and I still felt really, I mean, I had, like, this large wound. I don't know. I was, I was in some ways in no condition to resume sex or to have sex in a way that resembled the sex that I used to have. But I had this idea that at six weeks, like we should have sex. <laughs> and I think my husband would have been like, it's cool. We can wait. But I was like, no, 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 we're, we're going to have sex at like six weeks because I don't want to lose that. This is like yeah. an important part of our life. Right. Well, yeah. Well, what ended up happening is that my first postpartum orgasm. So the hormone that is released, oxytocin, when you have an orgasm is also, I didn't fully understand this. I think I knew this nominally, but it's also the same hormone that is released when you breastfeed. And it's what makes mm. the letdown possible, right? It's what makes the milk come out of your breast. And so I came and then a very large amount of breast milk shot out of my nipples <laughs> at the same time. And it was horrifying, right? I was so embarrassed. And my husband was like, oh my God, and was opened his mouth and was like trying to catch the milk, which was doubly <laughs> horrifying to me, right? Like, so the whole thing is just like, it's a mess. And then I was like, this is like, we have to stop. Like, I can't do this. Like, this is, this is, I, I can't, I can't do this. Like, I couldn't process it. And the thing, you know, within a few minutes, what I realized too is that it wasn't just that that happened and made, like now it's a funny story, right? Yeah. And I'm glad that now it's a funny story. <laughs> but the thing that it, that it indicated to me too is just that what I said earlier, which is like, it's this alienation from my body. So this is a thing that my body does. But my body was like, no, 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 no. Like you think that this is for your own pleasure. My body was like, right now, if we're going to release this oxytocin, it's about feeding a baby. Mm. Right. So I was like, my body, does my body even exist for me? Mm. Like first, my body was straight up telling me, it felt like, no, 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 this isn't about you. Like you don't get to come first right now. So so I don't know, that was like, you know, that's, that was what my journey back into it started with. And then I think I was like, so well, let's not have sex ever again. Stayed away from it. And then also like, yeah, like a physical, I think, you know, I just wasn't physically very capable or like of enjoying it. And I don't know, I'm still like kind of on this journey, right? Like for the first year, like after my oldest daughter was born, like, I, we would be like, I don't even remember the last time we had sex. And so we would like schedule sex. Mm. And I'd be like, I, if it's if it's been longer that I can't remember, like we need to just have sex. I don't care if it's four minutes long, like it doesn't matter. Like we just need to do this because it's a thing that brings us physically closer. And I never, it always was better, right? And you just realize yeah. that like what sex looks like, it just changes. And then now we have two kids right? so, and it's that much. There's, you know, people asked me after the birth of my second daughter, people asked me, you know, how is 
Noli, this is my oldest daughter. How is she dealing with that? Like, how is that going? And I was like, you know, it's fine. I was like, and that's not the relationship that you should be concerned about. The relationship you should be concerned about is my marriage. Like, because <laughs> we are, we are good and we look out for each other, but there is so little energy and time left over for each other. That's just a reality. And, and also my husband and I are really protective of have, of each other having our own time. Mm-hmm. And I think that one thing that we've realized just really in the last couple of months is that we will sacrifice time together so that each of us has time alone. He'll be like, no, 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 no. Go to your dance class, spend half the day away on Sunday because you need that. And then I'll be like, yeah, go, you know, go to your Monday night basketball game, go out for beers, do whatever. I'll be in bed when you come home. But like, you need to have that to feel like yourself. And only now are you realizing like that that's really important. I'm proud of us for doing that for each other. But if we don't tend to us first, everything else feels hard. And so we need to have that time together. And the truth is that sex is a part of that. And I'd like for it to become, (laughs) to be a bigger part of it. And I think that that will, that will come back. But yeah, like when you're in the thick of parenting young people, there's this idea, people talk about being touched out and Mm. that's, that's a real thing, you know, like you are, and it's, it's not the same as sex, obviously, but it's wonderful affection that you share with a small person, but you're carrying someone around, you're hugging someone, you're lifting them, you're carrying them. That takes energy. And that's at the end of the day, sometimes you don't want to be touched. And that's a really hard thing to admit too. It's all really hard and complicated. And I think to go back to something that's come up in our conversation, and I think it's important to talk about it and to realize that it's a a journey (laughs) and you have to work to get back to it. And it's going to be like a circuitous journey. It's not going to be a straight line. Yeah, I never even really thought about how, well, one, I never thought about this because I didn't know mm-hmm. <laughs> all the changes that happened to your body. Um, but, you know, when you were bringing up essentially experiencing, you knew your body at in a certain way before you gave birth, before you got pregnant, and then after you were trying to do things that you were familiar with and then realizing, oh, my body is also trying to do this other thing, keep a human alive. And you're just not in control of it either. And I, I think what I've learned as I've gotten older is that as much as I would like to control my body, there are just like most things I'm not in control of, mm-hmm. like at all. Yeah. It's just going to do what it needs to do. And I have to surrender to that. Yeah. I mean, that's a very important lesson to learn. And, you know, motherhood drove that home for me <laughs> in a big way. But I think it's really like, I, that's powerful to me. And that's not relinquishing power. I think it's it's acceptance. We don't think of surrender as being something of strength. But the older I get, the more I realize that it is. Yeah, I think so too. So what is the next step for you? I hear that you're working on a new book, which makes me really excited. Yeah, um, yeah I am working on a new book and it's going to be published with my same publisher. What I learned in writing my first book was that I really love learning and nerding out about the human body. And I really appreciate that you pick up on this, that one of the main things of the book is pregnancy and motherhood aside, the book really 
argues for having better body literacy mm-hmm. and understanding and appreciating what's going on in our bodies. And it occurred to me that we don't tend to learn about our bodies unless something's wrong with it. I didn't know what a gallbladder did until my sister-in-law had to get hers taken out. But I think like, what's the cost of not knowing what's going on in our bodies? To do some research and learn about the body and write about it. And I also realized that I like I still feel totally uncomfortable writing a memoir or writing something about just my life. I still haven't gotten mm-hmm. over the idea that no one cares. But um, <laughs> but I do like, in writing about my own experience, establishing an emotional connection with readers. So even if their experience is different from mine, you know, the power of storytelling is that you can form this emotional connection with someone and you can use that to to inform them, or in, as a, the case of my book, to like hit them with a secret political agenda, right? <laughs> like, so I'm taking those two things that I learned from the experience of writing my first book, and I'm writing a book of essays that is very much about the physical experience of living in a body, and specifically a brown female body in the United States. Well, I'm really looking forward to it. I can't wait, especially because, you know, one of my favorite parts of this book was how much I learned about my body and what it is capable of doing. So many things that I just never even knew about. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I want to like, I want to keep having those moments, right? Like, that's what's really exciting to me. And I want, I want other people to keep having those moments. You know, what's interesting too, is that I had I recently went on vacation. I had a moment though where I realized like I'm only one year out, basically just a little over a year after having my last baby and my body has changed in a way physically that I'm, I've kind of been not paying attention to it because it's almost been too hard to think about. But I had at this moment on vacation that was sort of like breaking down to break through <laughs> where I was like, I'm writing this book. I'm working on this book that's in many ways going to be like a celebration of the body And I have not been feeling great about mine, Mm. you know, like weight is distributed in my body in a different way. I had this idea of what my body was like and what it looked like. And I had to make peace with that, right? Because my body is like rounder, browner, right? Like these things that I've been told throughout my life aren't, aren't beautiful. And I got to a place of accepting it and thinking it was beautiful. And then it went and changed on me. I just thought you see you. Yeah. And so it feels really like, so it's like a big joke, right? And I think my body is just like, yeah, like, what are you going to do now? I'm just trying to sort through all of that. <laughs> yeah. And I, I feel like most of us are in that category too of having complex feelings about our bodies. And, you know, Mm -hmm. on some days you're like, okay, I feel mostly okay today. And then the next day, or even just a few hours later, it could be like, and now the world is ending. And Um, what is this like terrible meat sack that I'm stuck in? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Well, to end this um, with a little bit of a victory, I have been doing this thing where every week I try to write down um, and celebrate a small victory Mm. that I've had in the last week. And I feel like this just really acknowledges the small steps I've taken to take care of myself and also encourages me to keep going. So I would love to know what is a small victory that you've had in the last week? And it can literally be anything. The thing that has felt like a real victory to me this week is, so I mentioned this, I think before we started recording, but I just got back from a trip to California. Um, I went and did an event down there. So I had been feeling a little bit like having, I don't know, maybe just tired and weary. And and so I, I went down to do this event. It was actually a fundraiser 
for a really great organization called All Options. They believe in supporting pregnant people in whatever their experience is in pregnancy, whether they choose to carry to term, whether they choose to have an abortion, or whether they choose um, to put a baby up for adoption. It's great to like that an organization exists that puts all of these aspects of reproductive health like on the same level because they're all valid mm-hmm. and they're all important. What matters is that you have the choice and the information to do and the support to do what you want. Well, so the day of the event was the day after that the Alabama abortion ban passed, mm-hmm. which is you know just a few days after what happened in Georgia, and I was a wreck. I was I feel really. I mean, this has been going on for a long time and it's, you know, I'm aware of these issues and I talk openly about having had an abortion and, you know, reproductive freedom and justice is a very, very important thing to me. Um, but I felt in this weariness that I was feeling about the world and in my own life and like self-promotion and that kind of thing, I felt really proud because I went to this event. I just talked about what had happened, you know, in the last week and how I was feeling and the people in the room wanted to have that conversation. And many people like hadn't had a chance to really talk about it or be in a room with people who felt upset in the same way. And I try to give money to organizations and causes that I support, but I don't have a lot. What felt really good was that I, I made a book <laughs> and I was able to have an event that raised money for work that I think is really important. And it was really re-energizing to me and showed me to keep going that this this work is valuable and that I can contribute to it in different ways. And so that is my small victory. I feel like that's such a huge victory. <laughs> I mean, I feel like a, a victory that may have started out small, but that is so huge. And, you know, the value in just creating a space for people, especially in this moment that we are in where you know, every woman that I know in my life is just absolutely devastated by what has been happening. And just being able to have that space is, is so valuable. It's a really, really big thing that you did. Thank you. Yeah, it felt good. And I think the other thing that feels like a victory about it is that there are so many reasons to feel bad. Um, But it's so important to feel good and to let yourself feel good. Um, and that, so that's why I'm happy to reflect on that and share that. I'm so glad. Thank you so much for sharing. I have loved our conversation and it has been so wonderful speaking with you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for these wonderful questions that give me the time and space to reflect on complicated things and good things. And I do a fair amount of interviews and when, like I said, when I got your questions, I was like, oh, we're going to have like a real conversation. That's the thing. Yes. (laughs) Take care, Ingrid. Take care. And thank you so much to everyone who's out there and listening. On next week's episode, I'm going to be reflecting on my own thoughts on pregnancy and motherhood, and I want to hear your feedback on this episode too. You can leave me a voicemail at 551-333-9021 or send a voice note to onesteppodcast at gmail.com. Let me know what you thought. Was there anything that surprised you about pregnancy or motherhood? Or if you're a mom, was there a part of this that made you think, yes, why isn't anyone talking about this? Like I said at the beginning of this episode, Angela's book changed everything for me. And next week, I'll be sharing why. 
Also, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. You know why? Because we're new. We're new little babies out here in podcast land. And this really helps us. It helps us to grow. We would love to get to the toddler phase. You can find One Step on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, make sure to tell your friends. Word of mouth is good, too. You can follow us on Instagram at One Step Podcast if you'd like to stay up to date. Thank you so much to our producer, Christina Cleveland, our sound engineer and editor, Tung Chen, and our studio, the YouTube space in New York. And because this is such an amazing space, I just have to say I'm not being paid to say this at all by YouTube. The YouTube space is open to anyone with 10,000 subscribers or more. It is totally free. The podcast studio is free. The equipment is free. And I think this is important to say because I know so many creators want to start podcasts or they have podcasts and finding a place to record can be really difficult and expensive. And I think this is a really great resource. So we will provide a link where you can get more information and sign up to use the space. Take care and we'll talk soon.